Hello. Welcome to episode three of The Hate Crime Files, a podcast about crimes typically involving violence, motivated by prejudice, based on race, ethnicity, religion, sexual orientation, gender, gender identity, or other grounds. This podcast covers disturbing events and may not be suitable for everyone. It is not recommended for young children. Listener discretion is advised. I'm your host, Terrence Heath. This episode is part two of a two-part series examining two cases more recent than the one we delved into for our first episode. The cases of two little boys who faced horrific abuse and shared a terrible fate. If you haven't listened to part one, the story of Anthony Avalos, pause this episode and go back and give it a listen. I'll be here when you get back. In addition to the disclaimer at the beginning of this podcast, listeners should be aware that this episode deals with acts of extreme violence against children. If you find such reports disturbing or traumatizing, this may not be the episode for you. It is not recommended for young children. The story of the torture and death of Anthony Avalos, covered in the previous episode, is horrific enough all by itself. Yet it echoes the story of another little boy who fell through the cracks of a system that was supposed to protect him and was ultimately victimized by the very people whose duty it was to love and protect him. Gabriel Fernandez was eight years old. In photographs, he often has close-cropped, dark brown hair which accentuates his sharp features and almond-shaped eyes. Those features soften when his face opens up into a smile, revealing two missing front teeth. In one, he sits on the floor at home wearing a bright yellow t-shirt with the face of the cartoon character SpongeBob Squarepants on it. One final picture is a close-up of Gabriel's face as he lies in a hospital bed. His almond-shaped eyes are swollen shut. His face is bruised and tubes have been inserted in his nose and mouth. From the time he was one month old, Gabriel Fernandez lived with his grandparents, Robert Fernandez and his late wife, for eight years. They thought they had full custody of Gabriel until his mother, 34-year-old Pearl Fernandez said she wanted him back. Fernandez and her boyfriend, 37-year-old Isuaro Aguirre, eventually took Gabriel back, and deputies told his grandparents that their custody was not valid and Fernandez had the legal right to take him back. Fernandez had a long list of violations, according to DCFS, which caused her to lose custody of all of her children. Between 2003 and 2012, 
over 60 complaints were filed against Fernandez and Aguirre. In 2003, Fernandez was investigated for an allegation of severe neglect after she and Gabriel's older brother were in a car accident and the boy suffered a head injury because he wasn't wearing a seatbelt. In another complaint in 2007, a claim was filed stating that Fernandez neglected to feed one of her daughters and threatened to break the girl's jaw when she complained. These complaints prompted eight investigations by DCFS and Los Angeles County Child Protective Services, but the agencies found all but one of the claims unfounded. Gabriel lived with Fernandez and Aguirre for seven months. On May 22, 2013, Fernandez called 911 to report that Gabriel was not breathing. She told sheriff's deputies who arrived on the scene that Gabriel had fallen and hit his head on a dresser. When paramedics arrived, they found Gabriel naked in a bedroom, not breathing, with a cracked skull, three broken ribs, burns all over his body, and BB gun pellets embedded in his lung and groin. Los Angeles County Fire Department paramedic James Cermak, who found the child in cardiac arrest, later testified that there was an unbelievable amount of trauma on Gabriel's body. It was just like every inch of this child had been abused, he testified. Gabriel was taken to Children's Hospital in Los Angeles. Nurses there said the boy was covered in injuries. It seemed like every inch of Gabriel was bruised and swollen, one of the nurses, Emily Rabar, said. She said he had so many injuries that it was hard to keep track of all of them. Another nurse, Jody Mercier, testified that the youth looked like a shell of a boy, noting that he had multiple injuries all over his body. Gabriel was declared brain dead later that same day. Two days later, he was taken off life support. Gabriel died as a result of blunt force trauma and child neglect. James Kemp Rebe of the L.A. County Coroner's Office told the grand jury, I have never seen this many skin injuries on a child, he said. In the months that Gabriel lived with Fernandez and Aguirre, police visited the home multiple times, but deputies found no signs of abuse and did not file paperwork that would have led specially trained detectives to investigate further. One deputy visited the home after Gabriel said he had been beaten with a belt. Another deputy, responding to a report that Gabriel was suicidal, left the home without examining or interviewing him. When a school security guard called to report that Gabriel had bruises on his face and what looked like 
cigarette burns all over his scalp. He was rebuffed by a sheriff's deputy who screamed that a child being burned was not an emergency, according to court records. Another deputy, who eventually went to check on the boy, decided that the injuries were caused by a fall from a bicycle. The department's final visit took place just a week before Gabriel's death, after school officials reported that he had been absent for an extended period. Gabriel's mother said that her son had moved to Texas, and the deputy soon stopped the inquiry. What could possibly make an eight-year-old suicidal? In the eight years that he lived with his grandparents, there's no evidence that Gabriel suffered any mental or emotional problems. Yet in less than a year of living with his mother and her boyfriend, he was reportedly suicidal and ended up in a hospital, brain dead, and on life support. Later, at trial, Gabriel's siblings would testify that his mother and her boyfriend would call him gay and beat him when he played with dolls and made him wear girls' clothes to school. The prosecutor said Aguirre didn't like Gabriel because he thought the boy was gay and that was the motivation for mistreating the boy. According to Gabriel's siblings, Suaro Aguirre made Gabriel wear stereotypically female clothes to school and used torture methods to kill him, including whipping, beating, and starving him. Gabriel's 16-year-old brother testified that Fernandez and Aguirre frequently kept Gabriel in a box, a cupboard in the couple's bedroom. The cupboard had handcuffs attached to keep Gabriel from getting out. I noticed two beds in your room, but Gabriel still stayed in that box most of the time, Deputy District Attorney Jonathan Hatami asked the teenager about photos showing the bedroom the brothers shared. Yes, he responded. The boy's older brother recalled Aguirre often calling his youngest brother gay and sometimes putting a sock in and a bandana over the boy's mouth. So Gabriel was in the box for months and tied up like he was, the prosecutor asked. Yes, the teenager responded. He said Gabriel was hidden in the box when social workers came to their apartment and that his mother and her boyfriend told him to lie about his brother's injuries and to say that they occurred while the two boys were playing. He said his mother told him to tell police or paramedics the night of the 911 call that the boys were playing when the eight-year-old hit his head on a cabinet. The teenager also recalled his younger brother being kicked and struck by Aguirre with the metal part of a belt, a metal hanger, a wooden club, and a baseball bat, along with being shot with a BB gun in the face and groin area. The teen said 
Aguirre would hit Gabriel with his fist, kick him, and pick him up by the neck and drop him to the ground once the child lost consciousness. He also said Aguirre would pepper spray Gabriel in the face and strike his naked body with a belt buckle. Aguirre, a former security guard, was six foot two inches and 270 pounds. Gabriel was four foot one and 59 pounds. Aguirre wasn't the lone abuser either. The older brother testified that his mother also kicked Gabriel in the groin area, hit him with a broomstick, punched him and forced him to wear girls' clothing to school. He said his younger sibling, who would take other clothing and change in the school restroom, was hit once by his mom after she caught him. The two would gang up on Gabriel together and beat him up. He said they would laugh during the beatings. The accused also pinned Gabriel against the wall by the neck until he lost consciousness, he added. Aguirre would sometimes put makeup on the boy to cover his bruises. The brother said Aguirre and his mom threatened him with the same abuse if he told anyone or did anything to stop them, and said Aguirre and his mom told him to lie about Gabriel's injuries. He said his mother told him to lie about Gabriel's injuries to social workers and that she would hide his bruises with makeup as well. The pair used food and worse to torture the eight-year-old. My mom and her boyfriend made Gabriel eat spoiled stuff or expired stuff, the teenager said. One thing I remember is expired spinach. He threw it up and they made him eat it off the table, he told the court. They'd make him eat cat litter and the cat poop, he also told jurors. On the day Gabriel died, he said he watched his mother, Pearl Fernandez, and Aguirre beat the eight-year-old until he was bloody and drag him into their bedroom. Then they closed the door. He heard bangs and a scream before everything went quiet. Gabriel's 14-year-old sister described how Gabriel was choked and beaten with wire hangers, a baseball bat, and a belt buckle. She added that her mother and Aguirre forced the boy to wear pink leggings and a pink shirt to school. The prosecutor asked her how Gabriel had lost his two front teeth, to which she replied, my mother had punched him. Did he cry? The prosecutor asked. Yes, she said, wiping her nose and one of her eyes. She then proceeded to recount the day her brother died, openly crying, as she talked about her mother asking her to clean up the scene of his death. I was sitting on the edge of the bed, and my mother's boyfriend was punching him, she told the jury. He knocked the air out of him, and he fell over and didn't get back up. So they picked him up, they threw him in the shower. 
and they kept yelling at him to wake up. And when he didn't wake up, my mother decided to call the police. And she told me to grab a rag, and we cleaned most of the blood that was on the floor. The judge had to call for a break because so many in the courtroom were crying and distraught. Gabriel's teacher, Jennifer Garcia, described Gabriel after he joined her class in mid-October when he began living with Fernandez and Aguirre. Over the next few months, Garcia said she saw repeated bruises, burns, wounds, and other injuries on the young boy. She said in at least one instance that Gabriel came to school wearing girls' clothes. Gabriel had a striking innocence, Garcia said. He was hungry for her attention and praise and would stay behind at recess to help her collate and staple papers. One day in late October, about two weeks after he'd started school, Gabriel tugged on her side in the middle of class. Is it normal for moms to hit their kids? he asked. Well, yeah, she told him, recalling that she had been spanked as a child. Let's talk about this at recess. When recess came, Gabriel pressed further, asking, Is it normal for your mom to hit you with the part of the belt that has metal on the end? You mean the buckle? Garcia asked. Yeah, he said. Is it normal for you to bleed? Garcia called the abuse hotline. She told a caseworker about the belt buckle and the blood. She also said that during Red Ribbon Week, when teachers talked about staying away from narcotics, Gabriel had announced that cocaine was a drug. You do it like this, he said, holding his nostril as if he were snorting a line. Garcia noted that ideas came quickly to Gabriel and that he seemed to gain a small degree of control over his surroundings when he had a pencil in his hand. He was also quick to help other students. Once, when a classmate was struggling with a reading assignment, Gabriel jumped up to help her, encouraging her to take another look and keep trying. Yet Gabriel was often tardy or absent from school, and when he was present, he would sometimes act out. He'd kick other students, forcing Garcia to move his seat several times. He rarely went outside during recess, and when he did, Garcia would see him alone on the playground, kicking a wall. On Monday... November 26th, Gabriel arrived late. When the other children turned to look at him, they laughed and pointed. Someone had haphazardly hacked chunks of hair from his head, and scabs had formed on his scalp. He whispered to Garcia that he didn't know what to say when they asked what had happened. She coached him. My mom cut it like that. So what? Mind your own business. 
It became his mantra. Garcia called the principal to the room to take a look at Gabriel's head. But, as Garcia later recalled, before Gabriel drew near, the principal told him, It's okay, son, have a seat. Then he admonished her. We don't investigate. We just report what we see. Garcia called and left two messages on two different numbers the caseworker had given her. Gabriel was absent the next day. And when he returned, his hair was styled into a mohawk, which seemed reasonable enough. Still, Monday's events nagged at Garcia. She decided to call again and got voicemail. On that Thursday, Gabriel arrived at school with a busted lip. Garcia asked what had happened. My mom punched me in the mouth, he said. Garcia called the caseworker yet again. This time, she reached her and pressed her about what she was doing. How did Pearl Fernandez explain the injuries, the haircut? Rodriguez told her that confidentiality rules prevented her from saying. Gabriel worsened over the following weeks. On walks, he lagged behind and complained that his arms and legs hurt. Sometimes, Garcia would find him crying at the end of the day and saying he didn't want to go home. Near the end of January, Garcia was reading to a group of students when the door opened. It was Gabriel. This time, the students didn't laugh. They didn't understand what they saw. Gabriel's eyes were swollen and squinty like a cat's. Little round bruises dotted his face. Garcia told him to sit down. When she was finally alone with him at recess, she asked what had happened. When Garcia said she didn't believe him, she testified. She saw the anger well up in him, and he said, It's because my mom shot me in the face with a BB gun. When I tell you and that lady comes, then I get hurt worse. On March 26th, Gabriel's therapist filed a report claiming that Gabriel had been forced to perform oral sex on a relative. Again, he was interviewed in his mother's presence and retracted the claim. In late April, Gabriel appeared in class, looking worse than Garcia had ever seen him. One of his eyes was a deep red. The skin was peeling off his forehead. Other marks were scattered on his face, neck, and left ear. This time Garcia didn't ask what had happened. Instead, she asked Gabriel whether he really wanted to do that day's activity, making a Mother's Day card. He did, and he labored over every detail. The card 
was shaped like a house and said, Open the door to see who loves you. Gabriel pasted his picture inside. A few days later, Gabriel complained to Garcia that his eye was hurting, so she sent him to the school nurse who was brand new in the job. Gabriel told her he had fallen off his bike and begged her not to send him home early. She had no authority to make a diagnosis or mandate further medical attention, but she wrote detailed notes thinking that Child Protective Services caseworkers might inquire about the incident. She then called Pearl Fernandez to pick Gabriel up. That was a mistake, the school secretary told her. She knew, as so many of the school's staff members knew, that Gabriel was in danger at home. A week before his death, Gabriel's school asked a sheriff's deputy to investigate the situation, but the officer stated that he was given the wrong address. He said that when he was able to speak to Fernandez on the phone, she had claimed that Gabriel had moved to Texas. But Gabriel was not in Texas. He was still in that home, being beaten and abused, and still being locked in the box. According to court records, Gabriel was even forced to write a suicide note at one point, which social workers knew about. He was forced to write the suicide note so that Pearl and Aswaro could say it was his fault. They could say he did things to himself. The truth is, he played with dolls, and they claimed he was gay, and they hated that, said Emily Carranza, Gabriel's cousin. On May 23rd, the principal at Gabriel's school summoned Garcia to his office to tell her that Gabriel had died. But then someone said to her that he was at Children's Hospital in Los Angeles, and she tried to call the hospital. She later learned that Gabriel had been brain dead by the time she called and was taken off life support the next day. Garcia steeled herself to tell his classmates the news when they arrived. His mommy hurt him real bad, she told them through her tears. His mommy, the children asked. And in their eyes, Garcia saw a profound horror that she'd never seen in children so young. In the aftermath of Gabriel's death, four social workers responsible for his health welfare and safety were charged with felony child abuse and falsifying documents. The charges were upheld by a Los Angeles County judge who concluded that Gabriel's death was foreseeable. 
The ruling came a year after another judge found that red flags were everywhere before Gabriel's death and that the social workers mishandled evidence of escalating abuse and failed to file timely reports. After Gabriel's death, investigators found clothes covered in blood, BB pellet holes in them, and a wooden club doused in blood. Police noted Fernandez's disinterested demeanor when she was questioned. She expressed concern about the family's seven cats being left caged and alone in the apartment. Both Fernandez and Aguirre were charged with capital murder and special circumstances of torture. Both pleaded not guilty. Isuaro Aguirre was found guilty on November 5, 2017. Los Angeles County State Judge George Lamelli sentenced the 37-year-old to death. Pearl Fernandez pleaded guilty to first-degree murder on February 14, 2018. She was sentenced to life in prison without parole. The conduct was horrendous, inhumane, and nothing short of evil, Lamelli said in imposing sentence. You want to say the conduct was animalistic, but that would be wrong, he continued, because even animals know how to take care of their young some to an extent that they sacrifice their own lives in caring for their young. Days after Gabriel died, Garcia found in her classroom a note the boy had written. She later read it in court. I love you, Mom, and Gabriel is a good boy. It said. Thanks for listening to The Hate Crime Files. I'll be back with another episode on the 15th of the month. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to support it, please subscribe, tell your family and friends about it, and consider leaving a positive review at iTunes Podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts. Until next time, be careful out there and be good to each other.